Welcome back, listener, to History Files, where the topic of the day is escalation. We're focusing on the nuclear age at the moment in our Year 12 Modern History class, and the concept that we're trying to get our bearings around is the concept of MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction. And the way that we're going about that during this period of the Cold War is by looking at different leaders, the escalation of technological capabilities, whether or not a certain leader escalated or de-escalated during their time of power, and seeing if we can come to any sort of conclusions overall. But first of all, I want to introduce my first guest. So how are you going, Taj? Good. Good. Um, can you tell me where this all is going to start? Well, well I've got Harry S. Truman to talk about it, but it starts with FDR. Yeah? Well, let's go into that. So with FDR... He's the one who gets, he receives the letter from Einstein to convince him to begin a nuclear program since the Nazis, you know, go do it before the Nazis get it because that would be catastrophic Mm -hmm. if they got the bomb first. So yeah, he begins that, but it's still in progress when it gets inherited by his vice president, Truman, after he dies suddenly. And when Truman takes over, then he is given a decision about using the bomb in Japan. Is that the case? Yes. He has a dilemma that also feeds in from um, his past experiences as a a combatant in World War I. He had the opinion that he would have died had the war progressed a little longer. And he's also got nephews that are in uniform. So there's a strong personal pull towards using the bombs to end the conflict swiftly and less... Like more cleanly for the Americans, that is. Okay. So let's bring this back into, say, the chronological order. So you're saying that FDR, under FDR, in World War II, has developed these bombs. They're destined, they're destined for Berlin in the initial, say, Plan A. Yes. Now Plan B, it's given to Truman, a man who knows nothing about the program until he takes over. And like you just said, who is motivated to it. It looking for options not to invade Japan because of past yes. invasions such as you want to fill us in? He had a quote. There was a possibility of preventing an Okinawa from the one end of Japan to another. So basically to prevent scaling the gruesome fighting at the island hopping campaigns to the entire archipelago of Japan, which would have been very costly and protracted. Yeah. And the I think like the estimates that they had that were you know well and truly into the several millions of casualties on both sides if the invasion of Japan was going to take place. And he also can't just accept a more conditional surrender because he's got the legacy inherited from FDR of total victory. We must you know by God def- crush them. Yeah, yeah. So, and this is going to be a real theme of our whole episode today that these leaders that come in get lumped with this ongoing like legacy that they have to like live up to it's probably just like one of the one of the burdens of being like being a president or a leader of the soviet union especially as these stockpiles continue to grow it's very hard to like a giant tanker ship to turn it around you can't just do a straight up u-turn it's just you tear the whole thing apart he does differ from fdr like contradicts his projections into like the future because mm-hmm. he had cooperation with the British. He kind of distanced that as a part of like uh, some restraint, which I'll get into further with the Korean War. Is 
that the British had the expectations that they were always going to be, you know, equal partners in this Manhattan project, that they were going to rightfully get the bomb as well. And Truman said no. Right. He wasn't going to... He said, we can do research on, like, you know, nuclear stuff, but we, we are not giving you the bomb. Yeah. In the, yeah. It, under him, he's like, no, we're just going to try to keep it limited in scope and limited in scale as to who is going to have this power. So it kind of keeps the Americans as the sole nuclear power at this time. It does prevent escalation with the Soviets, since if they gave their allies nukes, that would be rather threatening. But um, it does escalate some tensions between them and the British, and the British go on to do their own nuclear program to get nukes. Right. And we won't get sidetracked into that because I want to hear about the Korean War. So this is where uh, not too you know, far off in the future after the bombs are used in Japan. Sorry, listener, we'll gloss over that bit because we all know about the bombs being dropped in Japan, but not so many people know about the bombs being, uh, being tabled as an option in Korea. So let's go into that. So... The bombs become a source of real contention between the civilian and military governments, sorry, civilian and military branch of, like, the United States. According to the Atomic Energy Act signed by Truman, the president, as a part of the civilian government, owns, like, control over nukes. The, mm-hmm. the army cannot use a nuke without them, which was, you know, to de-escalate stuff. And we're in, like, a, a Japanese situation where the Japanese army has all this power. It yeah. should all be the civilian and um, so, yes, the North Korean regime, which is communist, invades South Korea, which is capitalist and propped, uh, supported by the West. You could say propped up. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, the United Nations, led by the American Supreme Commander MacArthur, intervene. They push the North Koreans back. And MacArthur, you know, he took a leading charge in the Pacific War. At the, you know, he got a lot of glory from it. At current, he has Japan in his pocket. He's led the occupation of Japan. And he wants to reunite Korea under a capitalist government because that would be really good on, like, a legacy. That not only did he occupy Japan, but he also, you know, united Korea Mm. under them. So he pushes towards the Chinese border, like north. The Chinese get frightened. They intervene. And as they're intervening, he approaches FDR over a proposal to nuke the Chinese border to stop them. <laughs> because it's all going haywire up there in the north that the Chinese are, like, resisting. Like, they're just pouring in men, aren't they? Mm. Yeah. And um, Truman denies, he rejects it, and he fires MacArthur from command. And leading into that, there was also a press conference with Truman about nukes in relation to the war. Mm-hmm. And he fumbled his words and made a comment that could be inferred to suggest that MacArthur had the ability to use the nuke, which was very frightening for everyone because everyone thought MacArthur was this, you know, Napoleon. He's this, I don't know, Alexander wannabe. He's one who goes off and make his own empire. Yeah, and one of these, like, conquering sort of figures where we do know that he... After, I think, hearing that press conference, like, yet hearing that information, thinking, okay, like, this is what I'm inferring, that he then tabled 26 targets for nuclear destruction. 
including the stuff around the border. So it was in the cogs well and truly happening until Truman came in. And the interesting moment, for, like at this moment, is that they could nuke it without... This, there's no mad concept yet because yeah. there's no, they have hegemony over nuclear. They have a monopoly over it. No one else can nuke them. They only have nukes. So it's great restraint for there not to be a threat of annihilation to not use the bomb to deter the Chinese, which is a very, you know, very restraint and keeping it unescalated. Yeah, so I guess in Korea, like, as the Korean War goes on, um, the Soviets are getting, are testing their first bomb. But, like, as you're, I think as, like, what you're trying to say is that there isn't a real threat that the Soviets could possibly deploy that in the field that they're still a ways behind of, say, what the Americans can do. Yeah, the overarching thing with Truman is that he was suspicious of the Soviets, but he did have hope or, like, a desire for it to work out, for them to help reconstruct Europe and all that. Yeah, that this is really only the um, the, the early stages of the Cold War, that it's not, um, like, a forward defence, full-on containment, like, try to beat the Soviets everywhere that they go. Rightio. Well, thank you, Taj. That's a fantastic way to start our big topic today. And thank you for coming on the show. See ya. Okay, we're back for part two. And I now have Will with me. How you going, Will? I'm good, thank you. Always loves coming on the podcast. (laughs) And he is prepared to tell us about the next leader that we're going to be focusing on. So who are you presenting to us today? Today, I'll be presenting Joseph Stalin and uh, his efforts into the nuclear plants. Okay, so escalating of tensions, this building up of MAD. As we were just talking about with Taj, we were hinting that the Americans say before what you're about to discuss has a hegemony, a monopoly. They're the only ones with the atomic bomb, but Stalin changes this. So first of all, what time period are we looking at? Uh, We're looking at 1949 to 1953, but we are looking a bit before to... um, uh, uh, Vladimir Lenin's input. Okay, well, let's start there then. Tell me about the capabilities of the Soviet Union before Stalin comes in with his efforts into the programs. Well, under uh, leadership of Lenin, there there were some early efforts to develop nuclear technology in the Soviet Union in the 1930s. Uh, these were limited and did not consist a formal nuclear program. Uh, Parts of the reason was, um, I guess, developments of technology, understanding, and Lenin did die in 1924, so it could have stopped the process of that for a time being. Mm-hmm. Um, but then um, it begins to, as as we have Stalin coming in, he begins, begins to um, start the process of this again after World War II. Which, because they're a bit preoccupied with the Germans invading them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so World War Two, like you're saying, is over. Um, how does he catch up so quickly? Uh, so basically, um, while under Stalin's oversight, the tension of the Soviet Union's nuclear program escalates significantly. Uh, through um, as a behind, going back to being behind with. Um, uh, like anything to do with um, nuclear technology and they're way behind um, while um, 
trying to beat uh, the USA with their progress. So then they send in um, Klaus Fuchs. Mm-hmm. Sorry if that's wrong. Uh, during the Second World War, uh, Fuchs was a member of a large network of the Soviet spies who were working to obtain information from the Manhattan Project and other aspects of American military technology. Mm-hmm. He assisted with the Soviet Union in uh, stealing the nuclear secrets from the Trinity t- test and prov- provided information about design of the atomic bomb itself. Um, so they were able to then upskill. So they've gotten, so the Americans have spent all the money, they've got all the brain power together, and this guy who's infiltrated the program is able to get the secrets back to Stalin, and then Stalin is able to copy a lot of the a lot of the groundwork stuff. Yep. So then what do the Soviets end up making with that? When do they detonate their first bomb? They detonate their first bomb in 1990, uh, 1949, uh, which is, which was, they referred to it as, uh, it was first lightning. Uh, so it was quite significant for them as it uh, marked the milestone of further advancements, uh, creating... Um, uh, soon to be more nuclear weaponry, which didn't pick up until 1991. Didn't pick up until 1991. With uh, to develop its nuclear capabilities under Stalin's successes, and tensions remained high until the collapse. Oh, okay, right. So you're saying that this kicks up? I just misunderstood. Sorry. It just kicks off a gradual increasing of tension, which remains in place until the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Gotcha. Okay, well, thank you very much, Will, for giving us our first opening into the creation of MAD. So we've now balanced out the playing field. We've got Americans and Soviets with the bomb, and the Cold War is well and truly starting now. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, we're moving into part three now. If you're keeping score, so far we have talked about Truman, an American perspective. We've talked about Stalin, the Soviet perspective. And for the rest of the talk, we're going to be jumping back and forth so we can get a whole overview picture. So the next leader we're going to look at coming after Truman is... Ethan, can you tell us? <laughs> the 34th President, Dwight David Eisenhower. Excellent. Thanks for coming on the show, by the way. Yeah. Um, what time period are we looking at here with Dwight Eisenhower? Um, his time period is two terms of presidency, which is from 1953 to 1961. Okay. So... Under his presidency, um, we've obviously had some information so far about Truman, but if someone's dropping in here now, just where are we picking up from? What's the stockpile look like when he becomes president to him maybe after him leaving? So when Eisenhower becomes president, Truman had left around 1,000 nuclear warhead weapons. Um, By the time Eisenhower leaves his presidency, he doubles that with 2,000. Okay. So we've got 2,000 potential nuclear warheads, and are they still just dropping them from aerial bombardment, or have capabilities started to increase? Eisenhower has significantly brought the capabilities up, introducing the ICBMs, which are intercontinental ballistic missiles. Yeah, and these become really important. Yeah. Okay, so let's go into an intercontinental ballistic missile. So they're pretty much a nuclear warhead strapped to a rocket. Okay. Right and as the name says, they can travel intercontinental, continent, 
with a range greater than 5,500 kilometers. Okay. So launched up into, you know, sub-orbit, yeah. then it re-enters, mm-hmm. comes back down onto a target. And now each other's, you know, cities or allies, the major city allies or potentially in Berlin where the that major, like, hub is happening, where the Iron Curtain's being made, also, during, becomes a threat. during the early days of the ICBM, it had limited precision, so it could only actually target big cities. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So if they wanted... If they were talking about it from a military point of view of like, oh, okay, there's some units over there, we want to use it. You're saying precise, yeah. it can't it do that. It needs to attack a bigger target. So it's purely for terror intimidation on civilians. In the early days, in the early days. I'm sure it becomes better. Yeah. After. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, when we get to like tactical nuclear yeah. weapons. Okay, so they can lob them now across the sea or mm. at each other's allies, which is creating a bit more of like tipping the balance we'll see if the soviets come back and you know they meet this call or they meet this raising in the bets like thinking about it almost like a bit of a poker game Mm. what else is eisenhower responsible for um he is responsible for the massive retaliation policy massive retaliation policy okay go into that for me um it emphasizes the use of nuclear weapons as a deterrent against potential soviet aggression okay is there any major incident where it comes close to Eisenhower having to, you know, being called on this on this policy of if you do anything negative against us, like we're going to nuke you. Would that be the Big Four Summit? Is that what you want me to talk about yet now? Well, yeah, we can yeah. go into that now. If you so this there's a summit, you know, they're trying to normalize talks, go into the information that you have. So the Big Four Summit, which was a planned event between Khrushchev, Harold McMillan, Eisenhower and De Gaulle. Um, was planned in Paris, but it was then found out by Khrushchev that in 1960, an American U-2 spy plane, it w- they eventually shot it down over Swerdolsk, the, the Soviet Union's 10th largest city. Um, it, it was there to gather photographic evidence of the Soviet's assertion of superior missiles, um, but it led to Khrushchev launching an angry long speech to Eisenhower and um, demanding apology. But Eisenhower kept his cool, um, refused to apologise, stating the flights had no aggressive intent but were made to assure the safety of the United States and the free world against surprise attacks by a power which boasts the ability to devastate the United States and other countries by missiles armed with atomic warheads. That's a quote, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, it didn't really sound like you were uplifting it. Yeah. Or ad-libbing it. But that's an interesting... I'm, I guess, teaser to what is going to come a bit later because it's all about this idea of transparency. Mm. Yes, these weapons exist. Yes, we know that both sides have it. The one thing that is preserving the peace is... So they both have the power to destroy each other. Well, the, the other side doesn't get taken by mm. surprise. It would probably yeah. be more what I'm thinking about. So the Americans saying, if we're thinking about it from Eisenhower's point of view, that, okay, we need these high-altitude surveillance flights, so we know the capabilities, the exact capabilities of the Soviets, so that we feel comfortable that the balance is being kept. And Khrushchev is, you know, coming out and saying, you know, this is spying, this is dishonourable. Mm. But it's just interesting that as this goes on, that one of the ways or one of the main requirements that will come out of a lot of the peace treaties and talks that we have will come to each side being able to 
yeah, send it, send people to observe yeah, these I sites. Think I remember about these reading sites. something about um, a free air policy where they could both just view the airs over their countries to re- regain the peace. Yeah, yeah, just like allowing that confidence to be there that you know you're not secretly working on something and you're going to launch a surprise attack on me. Was there anything else that you've done in your research that you would like to touch on that we haven't looked at or spoke about yet? Um, I suppose during 1953, the, uh, there was an armistice, which is an agreement between the US and North Korea, ending the Korean War between them. Yeah, yeah. No, well, that's very important. Yeah. That's taken one, poten- one potential major nuclear threat or hotspot off the table because mm. we know what Truman thought about using the bomb and Eisenhower being a bit more aggressive against the Soviets um, would add, you know, another alternate possibility into the situation. Yeah. But apart from that, there was no really other major war or conflict or incident that was going on, was there? I don't, I don't think so. No, not not really. Not, not until really. he leaves and then we get into the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. But we'll save that for our next couple of guests. So thanks for coming on the show, Ethan. Thank you, sir. Okay, we're on to part four now. So, first of all, thanks, PJ, for coming on. All good. And being a part of this uh, big episode that we're doing to try to try to condense for someone who has no idea or even just for us or people doing the HSC what MAD was all about and how it slowly built up. We're, we're just talking to Ethan about President Eisenhower. Um, now we're going to be coming back to the Soviet Union and looking at your figure. So who are you going to be talking about? So I've got Nikita Khrushchev, who was the Russian leader from 1953 to 64. Um, He continued Stalin's efforts in nuclear technology, and by the end of his rule, Russia and US were at this real arms race. They were really competing, and it was was literally just a competition of who had the better, more um, developed technology. Okay. So when he came into power... So what's the state of play that Khrushchev is picking up from when he when Stalin you know kicks the bucket and he takes over? How many do you have any idea into what the capabilities were like and where they ended up under Khrushchev? Well, Stalin had um, used espionage um, to go into the U.S. and Britain to get their nuclear technology information. So they had the first nukes, yep. um, first lightning, yep. or Joe One. It was called by the U.S. Yep. Um, following this, they'd also tested thermonuclear weaponry. Um, this is sort of the next step in nuclear weapons. It's thermonuclear bombs or hydrogen bombs. Um, they use a more sophisticated design. So they're, they're com- more compact. Um, they have a lower mass and it creates just this bigger explosion. There's more um, volatile nuclear energy in them. Yeah. So you got more... We, we won't go into the science here for, for our listeners on how it works. We, we're not super experts, but your first bomb uh, comes from a uranium, I guess, core... And then the one, a couple of the other easier to make bombs were plutonium. And now what you're saying is that they're moving to this next more sophisticated level, which is a hydrogen thermonuclear bomb, which all the listener needs to know is it's much, much bigger and much, much more destructive. Yeah. So tension is, is ramping up. So following Stalin's death, they detonated the first thermonuclear bomb, which was called Joe 4 by uh, the US. So that was... Pretty, that was a big step. They've detonated a successful thermonuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. Um, during Khrushchev's reign, uh, Russia's inventory expanded to from around 200 to 1,000 nuclear warheads. Um, they developed ICBMs, the Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles, yep. which need a range greater than 5,500 kilometers, and they could have multiple warheads fitted into them. So that's the sort of 
requirements for them. Okay, so the tit for tat of America developing the ICBMs is being balanced out here. We could probably even argue that the Soviets were a step ahead, even with the Americans in this regard being the first ones to launch Sputnik and put the first man into orbit and all that sort of stuff. So at the same time you've got the arms race going, you've also got a space race happening. And the space race is almost a non-violent way of letting people know just we're getting more and more sophisticated at launching heavier, more complicated loads into orbit. And yes, at this point it's a dog or a monkey, but it could very easily be six warheads aimed at your city. Mm. So it's a, almost like a subtle way of, you know, showing off without doing a full-on nuclear test. Yeah, well, Khrushchev sort of um, elaborates on this um, tit-for-tat in a non-violent way. Mm. In an interview with an American reporter, um, he says if she had ICBMs, she would have launched her own Sputnik. Um, she's referred to America. Yeah. Um, and he's just saying they're not as technologically as, as advanced. Um, he also says... So that, he's like calling them out. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. starting online beef. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, he says, uh, let's have a peaceful rocket contest, just like a rifle shooting match, and they'll see for themselves. So he's just saying, we can do this peacefully without blowing each other up, and we will prove that we have a much more advanced arsenal. Yeah, well, th- I'm glad that you brought those sources in because what it's doing is kind of like providing evidence to legitimise what... I guess I was trying to elaborate on that the Soviets are trying to prove that they are a superpower in their own rights to the United States. They don't want physical conflict because we're at a point where nobody wants physical conflict. But a way of winning and getting that prestige is through, say, the space race. Yeah. Which then perhaps takes a life of its own when you have, you know, Kennedy and putting the man on the moon and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Are there any particularly uh, dicey incidents that occur under Khrushchev? I'm particularly thinking of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, yes, this whole arms race just sort of snowballs and it leads to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which has um, missiles placed very, very close to America, which is very threatening. Mm-hmm. I must say, if I had missiles very close to me, that would not be... <laughs> if, you're a, if you're a president or a power, it's just like an absolute no-no. It would be terrifying. And again, is another example of tipping the balance. So I know that you hadn't researched it, so I'll just put it in here that Khrushchev here, we've got him calling out America in the space program. One of the things when Kennedy comes into power, Khrushchev's opinion is is that... Kennedy is young, inexperienced, and perhaps is open to being intimidated. So him moving weapons into Cuba, apart from protecting the sovereignty of an ally, is to use as a bit of a bargaining bargaining chip. That we put weapons in Cuba, this young, new, untested president whose family's got a history of appeasement from his father with the Nazis, you know, they're going to crumble... And then I'm going to get exactly what I want, which is maybe some concessions in Berlin, yeah. maybe some missiles will get taken out of Turkey or something like that. Mm. But then it almost blows up the entire world as it looks like Kennedy is not going to back down from yeah. being intimidated. Is there anything else you would like to add about Khrushchev from your research? Um, one thing to note is that like this whole time America does have more of their like they've got more weapons the whole time they have a larger inventory mm-hmm. but i think russia really hones in on 
we have very strong things and we both have enough missiles to destroy each other. Yep. So we're making more dangerous things rather than more of the same stuff. Yeah, they're being more creative with their delivery systems and trying to outmaneuver the Americans just in sheer quantity. Yeah, and of course the space race as well. They're just trying to be more technologically involved. Yeah. Well, thank you, PJ. That's been really enlightening. And we'll um, pass on to the next person. Thank you, sir. Okay, we're well and truly over the half an hour mark. So if you're sticking in, we're now getting into the Cuban Missile Crisis and we're going to be looking at JFK's presidency. Just as a bit of a provisor, the uh, initial reader or discussion that we were going to have for this, Felix, he's out today. And we've got Zach back in, who is just going to read through a section that's been prepared on this. So this section won't be so much a discussion, just an important piece, piece of content before we go to our last um, Soviet figure. So thanks for doing this for us, Zach. Uh, yep, that's all right. Righto, so let's get into the Kennedy content that we do need to keep in mind. Yep. During John F. Kennedy's presidency, the United States was possessed a significant nuclear arsenal, including both strategic and tacti <coughs> tactical nuclear weapons. The country's nuclear capabilities had been rapidly expanding during the Cold War, and Kennedy inherited an already substantial stockpile of nuclear weapons from his predecessor, Dwight D. Eisenhower. At the beginning of Kennedy's presidency in 1961, the United States had approximately 2,500 nuclear warheads, with a range of yields and delivery systems. This included the inter Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles, the ICBMs, submarines, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, and strategic bombers. One of the most significant developments during Kennedy's presidency was the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. The Soviet Union had installed nuclear missiles in Cuba, which were capable of reaching the United States. Kennedy responded with a naval blockade of Cuba, and after a tense standoff, the Soviet Union agreed to remove the missiles on the condition that the United States would never invade Cuba and that ballistic missiles would be removed from Turkey. It cannot be overstated that there was a significant risk of nuclear war between the two superpowers during the crisis. However, both sides did recognise the need for better communication channels to avoid similar crises in the future. As a result, a direct communication hotline was established between the White House and the Kremlin to allow for quick and direct communication between the leaders of the US and the USSR. This hotline was established in August 1963, several months after the Cuban Missile Crisis ended. Additionally, the two sides began to engage in more diplomatic efforts to reduce tensions and address areas of conflict such as the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty signed in 1963. While there were still moments of tension between the US and USSR, such as the Berlin Crisis of 1961, overall, communication and diplomatic efforts between the two nations improved after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Finally, it is worth noting that by 1963, just before Kennedy's assassination, the US began deploying Polaris submarines armed with nuclear-tipped ballistic missiles, this was a significant advancement in the country's second strike capabilities as the submarines could remain hidden for months and survive a first strike attack. Yep, and that's all that's there. Okay, well, thank you for lending us your voice, Zach. I'll just quickly do a, a maybe a cliff nose version of that, seeing as it wasn't so much of a, a discussion. So Cuban Missile Crisis escalates the Cold War and this question of nuclear weapons 
to the brink. So if we're talking about brinkmanship, pushing each other in this tension, it really comes to a crescendo here. It is avoided, thankfully, for everybody involved, everyone who's listening, no matter where you are at the moment. It de-escalates, and it de-escalates into a period of detente, which is like a French word meaning the cooling off period, where both sides recognise, like what Zach said, there needs to be better communication, so setting up of a direct hotline, a scaling back of nuclear weapons both from Cuba and from Turkey, one of the other things that might show that there is not a complete de-escalation is that the Americans are deploying more sophisticated submarine second strike capabilities. So again, even though they're talking and they're talking about reducing in some regard, they're still trying to, they're still playing this very delicate game and the Soviets are probably going to have to respond next. So thank you for coming on, Zach, and lending us your voice. Yep, all good. <laughs> no drama. Okay, listener, we are now at part six. This is going to be our last figure. Yes, it is not the end of the Cold War and the, you know, the the penultimate 1991, like what we were talking about um, with Will all that, uh, you know, 20 minutes or so ago, but I've run out of students. So <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up with Darcy telling us about our next and final Soviet leader. So, first of all, thanks for coming on, Darcy. No problem, sir. Okay, so who are you going to be talking about? Uh, I'm doing Leonard Brezhnev, who was in leadership between 1964 to 1982. Okay, so let's start by painting a picture and connecting it from post-Khrushchev. What were the capabilities that Brezhnev inherited and then we can talk about to whether or not he escalated or de-escalated during his his reign. So under Khrushchev, the Soviets had roughly, it wasn't an exact figure, but 200 to 1,000 warheads. And they had also started their testing with the ICBMs that could deliver nuclear warheads. Um, and they had estimated 50 of them. And they also started their development of the Tu-95 Bear and the Tu-22, which were like these supersonic strategic bombers. Okay. Um, so we have ICBMs, a stockpile of warheads, more than enough to maintain the balance, and they're testing these supersonic planes which can perhaps deliver the weapons faster than um, traditional anti-aircraft you know, batteries might be able to take them down. So we're still testing the waters here. So when Brezhnev comes in, what does he do to the capabilities? Well, so in the 80s, it was estimated they had about 40,000. So over the 20 years, he increased it significantly by about 39,000. Yeah. Um, and during his tenure, they also continued to like modernize and expand their nuclear capabilities with the ICBMs, introducing the submarine, uh, so the SLBMs, which included the SS-18, which um, was like the largest and most powerful one built ever by the Soviets. Right. Gotcha. And... So that seems on the surface to be a tremendous escalation. And because we don't have the, the luxury of having a next speaker to talk about Nixon's presidency, I will just caveat that even though it sounds like the Soviets have ramped up dramatically, this is again in balance with what the Americans are doing, that the Americans have also, through the 60s, 70s and 80s, uh, dramatically increased their stockpile to, I think, around about 35,000 warheads. And they're also medium in this sphere of trying to make 
larger and larger thermonuclear explosions. But because this is known as the period of detente, it's famous for de-escalation. So why is that the case? So during the 70s, the US and the Soviets started the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks, which is like this treaty between the Soviets and the US. Yeah. Um, and so they actually broke off into two different talks. So there was the SALT-1 talks, which happened, I don't have the exact date, but I think it was 72. Yep. And they basically, this was like the first start of de-escalation during this period. So they froze the number of ballistic missile launches that could be produced. They also dismantled an unknown number of SLBM, SLBM launches for both the US and the Soviets, mm-hmm. They, uh, which also resulted in limiting the ICBMs that had range like from the... So the US couldn't have ones that could reach the Soviets and Soviets couldn't have ones that could reach the US. So they had to reduce that to a specific number. Yeah. Um, but I guess what's important is that there is a transparency of that they're both reducing them at the same time, yeah. almost like two enemies, you know, being able to watch each other yeah. back away from the battlefield, you know, with the other side, you know, not being blindfolded, not worrying yeah. about their another flanker surprise attack coming in and that's actually why the salt one treaty didn't work like didn't get that finalized because the u.s were kind of backing down but not going too far back and the russians wanted to go further back so yeah yeah, that kind of like limited how much the soviets could go back still yeah and that's probably something that people don't think about too much especially when we even get up to people like gorbachev for example that the soviets are not in an economic position similar to the Americans. This program is incredibly expensive to maintain. So any way of saving face and maintaining the balance is good for them. Yeah. So in most cases, the Soviet is not the aggressor. Mm. The Soviet is looking to downgrade, but the Americans want mm. to not give up all their power that they have. Yeah, the entire game plan for the Soviets was purely just to match them. And they wanted to take it back as far as they could. Like that's in the talks, I can't remember, but they wanted to pretty much strip all ICBMs mm. pretty much from the US. And they were happy to do the same as well. Yeah. But obviously, the US aren't going to do that. No, they're not going to. <laughs> no, it, it's hard when you feel when you feel that you're in a superior position yeah. to, to give up, I guess, the golden goose or to give up that, that power and authority. Um, so the first talks are a testing of the waters that really don't go too far. Yeah. So what's the result of the SALT-2 talks? So the SALT-2 talks, they kind of come off the back of the SALT-1s like pretty much straight after like only a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was due to the fact that they only had a limited number of deployment sites protected by ABM systems, which were anti-ballistic missile systems. So they could only have one each, which was kind of to stop them from like driving into this competition where they actually produced more abms okay so that's how that like the salt two like they realized they've only got one protection yeah that it could all yeah blow up in their face anyway okay yeah so that's when yeah they start with brezhnev and uh jimmy carter they're the two that really start these talks Mm -hmm. and they ended up banning new missile programs that was over five percent better than the current deployed missiles which I didn't understand how they really, yeah, got the five percent figure, but yeah, that's what. So sorry, just so I understand, they started, they started banning new programs that were five percent better. Yeah, so they couldn't develop missiles that were five percent better or than more, their current or more, or more, yeah, or more. Okay, so they're putting they're putting a cap on development. Yeah, that it's like okay, you can 
make tweaks and stuff to what's existing, but we don't really need to. It's we don't need to continue this insanity yeah. of making bombs that are more and more and more destructive. It's more than enough already. Yeah. So okay, so there is some sort of realization that we've got the capabilities to destroy each other. Yeah, it's more about now how do we get it to a a safe capacity for both sides in a transparent manner yeah. and yeah hopefully get and prevent um accidental uh launching yeah. or anything like that is there anything else you would like to add about brezhnev's period of time were there any other developments or anything else to add um there is like i found an interesting point that this salt 2 talks never actually got signed because uh jimmy carter withdrew due to the Soviets, like the Soviet-Afghan war. Oh, yes, yep. And then also the brigade in Cuba as well, that was still there. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter just basically withdrew from it and the US Senate never consented to the terms. Oh, they didn't ratify yeah. the treaty. Yeah, yeah. but both sides still honoured it. So although it was never really like signed off, yep. they still, yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's, depending on how harsh you want to be, you can say that the SALT talks... You know, it didn't result in anything because it wasn't officially ratified, so it wasn't made law by the Congress. Mm. So there's no legal repercussions for an official not following the talks. But at the end of the day, if we look back and judge it for what actually happened, the like you said, the leaders stuck to the honouring of the treaty and the words of these men just stood out. Yeah. Okay. Well... We're probably going to have to wrap it up there. So, listener, thank you for being with us today, going through our exploration of MAD. Perhaps maybe in the future we'll be able to come back and look at the closing um, of this period of time. I'm sure we will in the future. But thanks, Darcy, for coming on the show. No problem, sir. And thank you for everybody else who came on the show. And we'll see you again next time on the History Files podcast.